invited to turn in the Word of God this evening to Acts chapter 8, the book of Acts chapter 8. As you're turning there, I have uh, something I thought about doing for the children here um, in light of Reformation. I'm thinking about the Reformation and the normal means by which children get candy at this time of the year, I thought, well, maybe I can do something a little different that would still give you some candy. So, I have a question or a challenge for the children to find out by next Lord's Day, and if you can give me the answer, if you can come and give me the answer next Lord's Day, then I will give you candy, or Mrs. Tomasin will give you candy, whoever's got the candy, which it may be her rather than me. So, you children listen up now. And you parents listen up too, because your children may need some help. But we sing Luther's hymn regularly, and we will be singing it, God willing, next weekend as well. And in that hymn, there's one little, there's one line where he says, one little word shall fell him. The question is, what is that little word? And perhaps there are parents here that have no idea, and you've been singing it for 40 or 50 years, and you're wondering, what was that word that Luther had in mind? One little word shall fell him. So, the task then, children, if you want candy next Lord's Day, is to find out the answer to that. And I will give you a tip. There is an article that's fairly extensive looking at that that you can find online. I'll not say where, but if you struggle to find it, let me know, and certainly I'll be able to help you, or willing to help you, guide you in the right direction. So that's, that's the challenge. You want candy next Lord's Day? One little word shall fell him. What did Luther mean? And we will endeavor to reward your diligence on that. So I trust that you look forward to that and find out the answer. All right, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We want to whet our appetites for the Reformation, and it is a grief that there's so little appreciation for this important part of our history, and I trust that the Lord will use tonight's message as well as the forthcoming messages next weekend as well. So, Acts chapter 8, we're going to read the opening verses. And I'll tell you now that tonight will be mostly historical, and I will not be so much dealing with the text, but I think this is a relevant passage to use as a springboard for our thoughts. Acts chapter 8, let's hear the word of the Lord from verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his, that Stephen's, death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, And they were all scattered abroad throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and healing men and women committed them to prison. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people, with one accord, 
gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were, were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Amen. I can hardly, hardly read verse 6 without just our hearts breaking over such a scene as that. First, verse 4, you have the people gossiping the gospel. That's the sense of their preaching. They are gossiping. A different word is used of Philip who's declaring Christ to them. It's more of that work of the ministry, of the preaching, of the preacher. But the people with one accord give heed unto those things. They give heed all together. Just a huge movement of peoples receiving the word with gladness. And there was great joy in that city. May the Lord even give us a desire to see it again. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Our Father, we, we long for a repetition of the outpouring of Thy Spirit in our day to see the Spirit so come. And we read this passage and it excites our hearts to think of what can happen even in places where it may not be expected. God, we would pray that we would have an expectation for Thee to work in places that it may seem so difficult to ever imagine. There would be such a movement of the Spirit that, largely speaking, the entire community falls in repentance and faith before the living God. Oh, Lord, that we would see it that we would pray for it regularly in our hearts. We think of Lloyd-Jones who said that every day he prayed for revival. God, may we also enter into that same longing, whereas it is so common for us to, to just not expect nor pray for these things. We ask for a vision, for a true understanding of how easy it is for the Lord to do a mighty thing in a moment of time. For whatever reason is pleasing to thee, thou hast withheld such demonstrations of thy power for a long time. O God, may we see a return of thy right hand in saving power. So come, help us tonight. And give us the insight, the help, the motivation. May even the most dull heart be quickened tonight. Use what we say to benefit souls and extend thy kingdom. Grant us thy spirit upon preacher and listener we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is at this time of the year, more than any other time of the year, that we give thought to the Protestant Reformation, an event that took place around 500 years ago with the particular event that we ponder as the kind of cataclysmic uh, event being Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg on October 31st. 1517. That's the date that we like to etch in our minds, and it's the date that we want to treasure. While Greenville gets all excited about other things that I'll not get into now at this time of the year, we want to be a people that get excited about that which matters to God. 
We don't want to be those that are so drawn in by themes of darkness, though it may be done in a light-hearted and even jovial way. To make light, I mean in terms of how we deal with it, to make light of the things that are dark instead of pondering, celebrating, remembering God so mercifully removed such darkness from the continent of Europe and influenced so much of the world by what was done in those years. It was on October 31st, 1517, that a troubled Augustinian monk named Martin Luther addressed the abuses he saw concerning the indulgences of the Roman Catholic Church and to some degree papal authority I wanted to discuss and debate these themes, but in raising it as he did, it gave momentum to something that had been threatening to occur for far longer than even he had been alive. The Protestant Reformation did not begin with Martin Luther, but certainly it snowballed in his day. Other men had sown seeds of Reformation, men like John Wycliffe, who died in 1384, a long time before Luther. John Huss, who died in 1415, again a hundred years before Luther. But with these early lights of dissent, these men who saw the problem and began to endeavor by, by whatever means they could to bring light to those issues, it wasn't until the invention of the printing press and its widespread use that it caused this momentum really to to come upon the people in a way that was impossible to stop. Sometimes I wonder if the modern technology we have available today was available to Martin Luther, what it is that he would also get involved with. What would he use? Would he have his sermons on sermon audio? Maybe you wouldn't want them on sermon audio, given some of the content of them. Would he be on YouTube? Would he be on Twitter? Facebook? Instagram? Would he be on TikTok? <laughs> I don't know, but, but, but I can kind of see him across the board in any of them. I really can. And any of you who know in the manner of Luther, Luther the man, and the way he engaged in dispute can see why why he may carry a lot of weight in the social media age in which we live. He had a certain, we might say, edgy style. For example, when he wrote of Catholic Duke Henry of Brunswick, he said, For you are an excellent person, as skillful, clever, and versed in Holy Scripture as a cow in a walnut tree or a sow on a harp. End quote. So he had a way, and you can read, there, there are so many of them, in, in his work against Professor Jacob Latimus, he said, it is a great bother to reply to him, for in doing so you can neither exercise skill nor increase your learning, and yet you're forced to waste precious hours. He went on to say, you people are more stupid than a block of wood. And, and this really, the, attacking their intellect was really kind of the, the, the area he liked to frequent, let's just say. Uh, observing their lack of intelligence and reason in their arguments. 
For example, your words are so foolishly and ignorantly composed that I cannot believe you understand them. <laughs> you are a bungling magpie, croaking loudly, is another one. You know less than does a log on the ground. You're like the ostrich, the foolish bird which thinks it is wholly concealed when it gets its neck under a branch, or like small children who hold their hands in front of their eyes and seeing nobody imagine that no one sees them either. In general, you're so stupid that it makes one feel like vomiting. So, that's, that's Luther. Luther. Luther liked to create imagery in your mind to get his point across. And certainly there were things he said that make you wince. There is an aspect in which you're very glad that Twitter was not available in Luther's day because, again, that, that, I'm sure there was, a, there was some measure of editorial review on the things at times that he would write, and therefore perhaps some of the worst things got kind of removed on occasion. But that access to just throw your thoughts out instantaneously may have resulted in all sorts of negatives as well as positives. But each October in this church, it is the practice to remember what God did around that time of the Reformation, the years preceding it at times, the years following it. And it's a good practice. It is a good practice and something we do not want to let go of. And while others do not care and think little of what God did at that time, we do not. Of course, the accusation may come, well, you're exalting men. No, we're not. No, we're not. We, we keep in mind very clearly 1 Corinthians 3.21, let no man glory in men. And nor, do we, nor do we want to look at it in such a way where we look back and we are endeavoring to, to kind of pine after those brighter days in opposition to the instruction given to us in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 10. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. But, but what we do here, what we do, and, and, and every time I come to this subject, especially here, I felt a certain more liberty in Calgary because I was very conscious of the fact that there were very few that had clear insight into this area of history. That's not the case here. And yet, and yet, and this, I say this for the benefit of those who may think, well, we've heard it all. We've heard most of it. We've gone over this for years. These themes have been put before us year after year after year after year. For, for some of you can look back 40 decades, or four decades rather, not 40 decades. <laughs> That'd be interesting. <laughs> You'll be living through it almost. Uh, we need to remember that our children don't know. Our children and our children's children need to be reminded of these things. They need to have them put before them as well. And Scripture calls us, as the people of God, to remember the works of God. And obviously that comes forth in Scripture, and the, the repeated review of God's dealings with the children of Israel, it comes up all of the time in the hearts of the Lord's people. But even in history, recognizing that history is the working of God's providence— it's the act of the Spirit. It is the moving of God in one generation or another. And we observe and review and consider those movements of the Lord. And it is right that we do so. In such remembering, it does two things. First, we recognize the value of what was done. We recognize the value of what was done. It's precious to us. We live in the present, but there are things to value about the past. Certainly things to forget 
and to cast away and to lament about the past. But there is value in the past as well. And it also, secondly, renews our vision. Looking at these things renews our vision for what the Lord has done and can yet do. So so we, we read about this and we think, do it again, Lord. Do it again, Lord. In a devotional written by a Dutchman, Van Lodestein, in 1674, he stated, quote, The church is reformed and always in need of being reformed according to the Word of God. Semper Reformanda, always reforming, always. It's the expression of the doctrine of sanctification through the life of the church. It is a realization that we don't consistently progress, that we have our ups and our downs, and we constantly need to be reviewing where we are and giving ourselves more fully to that which would glorify the Lord. So we don't just look back on the Reformation in some way where we are just nostalgic about it. We thank God and we are motivated. We are motivated to live and pray and evangelize in such a fashion as to see something similar in our own day. There's this awful presence of the present. It's so dominant where the day in which we live seems to be like some freight train that cannot be stopped. And so when we live in days of declension, as we do, it feels like this is just pushing on. This, this force of degradation spiritually cannot be prevented. But it's not true. It is not true. I mean, think about it. Think, think about even what has happened March 2020. It halted many things that previous to it you would have imagined would be impossible to halt. But it did. And in that, we, we, we we gain a little insight into nothing has in itself a force that will continue its own existence indefinitely. God can bring it to an end and change and turn the tide at any moment of any day. So tonight, I've given, this is really just an overview, some Reformation themes, wetting the appetite, not wanting to I go too much into what our brethren will deal with next weekend, but I've entitled it simply The Legacy of the Reformation. The Legacy of the Reformation. And I want to consider just some few, a few overviewing thoughts of, of things that, that are on our hearts here tonight. First, it was a legacy of selfless perseverance. We have in the Protestant Reformation a legacy of selfless perseverance. And we can see this in a number of ways. For example, When we think of the Reformers, they persevered in their work. They persevered in their work. We we, we see what they did, and we we see the end product, but often we don't take time to think about 
how difficult it was to do what they did and to get to the point of completion in these various projects or tasks. For example, think about the Scriptures, translating the Scriptures. Now, today, when, you, when, when there's a new version that comes out, a new Bible version appears on the shelves, usually there has been a whole host of individuals involved in that. They, they divvy up the work, and they have these scholars pour over certain segments of Scripture, and then they, they pull their ideas together, and then there's a, an editorial uh, committee that will review the whole and the work of every man. There's kind of each man reviewing each other man's work, and all of that's going on but you have many hands to deal with this in a time when the tools are far more extensive than what they had 500 years ago. Those who undertook the task of translating from the original languages, first of all, they, they had not the need to do that for themselves. Luther didn't need to translate the Scriptures into German. He could read it. He could read it in Latin, he could read it in Greek, he could read it in Hebrew. It didn't matter to him personally, but, but he, he understood, he understood the need to translate. And when he translated the New Testament Scriptures into German, it took him the better part of two years as far as I can remember anyway. And by the end of it, he gave to the German people a, something that they could understand, something that for the first time they could engage with. And the impact of that was profound. Here they are, they, 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 this, this, new, this, this new access to, to the New Testament Scriptures. And it had such a profound influence upon them that for the first time, not only does it give them access to the Word of God, but it unifies the very language of the German people. Again, it's difficult for us to think about how life was back then and how, how inaccessible it was to, to go to other areas, how few people actually moved around outside of their own territories and districts and so on. And so there, there was a, a disjointed communication. The, the language was not unified. It wasn't a kind of this foregone conclusion as to what the language is and how to communicate Certain terms would be different depending where you would go. Philip Schaff records, Luther's New Testament was so much multiplied and spread by printers that even tailors and shoemakers, yea, even women and ignorant persons who had accepted this new Lutheran gospel and could read a little German, studied it with the greatest avidity as the fountain of all truth. Some committed it to memory and carried it about in their bosom. In a few months, such people deemed themselves so learned that they were not ashamed to dispute about faith and the gospel, not only with Catholic laymen, but even with priests and monks and doctors of divinity, end quote. Within months, Within months, they're seeing a disparity between what they had always been taught and what they're now reading. A difference between what the Word of God actually says and what they had for so long been taught to believe, it says. Within a few months, William Tyndale, the Englishman, was similar. 
a scholar, a linguist, fluent in eight languages, modern and ancient. He became the father of the English Bible, the father of the English Reformation, the father of the modern English language. His translation work of the New Testament took a similar time to Luther, not just doing something unprecedented and laborious, but doing it under the constant threat of death. People were after him. These were men with huge intellects, worldly potential, and yet they persevered in this, 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 this task, locking themselves alone, wrestling over language, at times thinking of words that yet were even to be expressed in their own language in order to communicate the sense of the text. Tyndale's impact was like Luther's, changing, unifying the English language in a way that previously was not known. And what is encouraging is these men persevered in such a task like that, and the threats that were against their lives. What is encouraging is that what made the difference wasn't just their work and the translation that they gave themselves to. What made the difference was that when it was published and people were given access to it, they actually read it. Luther's New Testament would not have changed Germany's language if people didn't read it. Tyndale's New Testament would not have changed the English language if people did not read it. As I thought about that afresh, I thought, you know what the need is? We, we, we don't need to engage in this work. The pressing need of our modern day in English-speaking world is not translation work. It is actually getting people to read the Bible. The one thing you can do is be excited about the Word of God. To go into your work with, with an expression of the wonders of the, of the Scripture. Talking about it. Telling, hey, did you know I was reading today? I was reading in the Bible today something that really blessed me. Even talk, talk to the worldling like this. Talk to the unconverted. Talk as if Scripture is the most precious possession you have, for it is. And, and, and share that excitement. Communicate the excitement. Can you imagine those German people, those English peoples, as they, as they, would, they would go to their places of work and they would engage with others and they would say, look what I found. Look what I've got. I've got a copy of the Word of God. Look at it. Look at it. Look. Read. Let's read. Let's read a passage together. And they were excited. And by that very excitement, their lives were transformed. Entire communities were changed. They lit a fire under people. There was just this, this spreading of excitement about the Word. And the problem today isn't that the world has no interest. The world has no interest because the church has no interest. The church doesn't care about the Word. We, we, we barely read a thing. We, we don't engage with it. We don't love it. We don't, we don't embrace it. And we're not excited about it. Even those of us faithful and diligent in our reading of the Word, it's like a task to be done. But it doesn't fill our language through the day. Amazed at what? Hey, guess, guess what the Lord? Guess what I read in the Word today? If we, if we could even see that, if we could even see, oh, let's just speak to ourselves. Let's not cast 
stones down the road. Let's just look to ourselves. That faith here is a people excited about Scripture. That comes out in their lives day by day. Excited. They also persevered unto death. Not only persevered on their work, but they persevered unto death. 500 years ago, in 1521, Tyndale was meeting in what was known as the White Horse Inn with a number of men to discuss the works of Luther. A number of names known, Thomas Bilney, John Frith, Robert Barnes, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, Thomas Cranmer, Miles Coverdale, and there were others. But what unifies these men is, is how they ended. They were martyred. Thomas Bilney martyred 19th of August, 1531. John Frith martyred for Christ 4th of July, 1533. Robert Barnes, martyred for Christ, 30th of July, 1540. Nicholas Ridley, martyred for Christ, 16th of October, 1555. And Hugh Latimer, on the same day. These and others, martyred. Cranmer. And along with them are, are names you've never heard of. You don't know anything about, and I know nothing about either. Thomas Hitton, Thomas Bennett, Richard Bayfield, Thomas Harding, William Cowbridge, John Lambert, William Collins, William Jerome, Richard Spencer, John Ramsey, Thomas Bernard, James Morton, Anthony Pearson, Henry Filmer, Anne Askew, John Adams. And that's just those in England prior, prior to Mary's reign, when another 284 would be martyred by her hand. They persevered unto death. Their joy was Christ to death. Romans 8, we made mention of this on Wednesday evening. Romans chapter 8, that most precious portion of the Word of God and how it illustrates the beauty of, of our union with Christ. And being in Christ, this is the thing, being in Christ is everything. If you have that, you have everything. If you're in Christ, you have everything. Do you believe that? Do you? Do you believe it? If I am in Christ, I have everything. When the pressures come, the Lord uses tribulation to just test that. Is Christ really everything? And so when Paul writes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, 
or sword. This is what I mentioned. I, I, I just made mention on Wednesday night of this, this quotation from Psalm 44, as it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. What, what's the relevance there? The relevance is this is the experience of the people of God. That they go through times where they're just, they're just like sheep being sent to the slaughter. That, that they're, they're, they're brought into immense suffering. That God will bring them into this, this crucible of unimaginable difficulty. And it doesn't change a thing. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have Christ. We have Christ. Oh, we have, just, just take that, even take that home, troubled believer, take, take that to your bosom tonight. Yes, not I, but Christ. Be honored, loved, exalted. Let it be about Christ and everything. That's what these men lived by. Some of them struggled, some of them did. There's, there's interesting stories about, about their, 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 their wrestling with the, the knowledge of what was before them. But they, they pushed on anyway. And not all of them, of course, were martyred. Not God spared many of them as well. And they died of sickness or just old age or they, the breakdown of the body by the sheer intensity of their work. And you think of John Calvin, who had sickness, the vast majority of his adult life, he was sick, and yet he labored on. He labored, he labored, he labored. And Pope Pius... The fourth hearing of Calvin's death exclaimed, Ah, the strength of that proud heretic lay in this, that riches and honor were nothing to him. He could not be enticed. Why? Why? Because his, richness, his riches lay in Christ. Oh, be careful. Be careful amidst the prosperity of our day. I received report this afternoon from that dear brother Edgar Trabolsi that I receive correspondence from just on his email list occasionally. There he is laboring in Beirut. The, the currency there, you know, has, has plummeted in its value by 90%. And the blast that took place a year ago and everything else that's happened, the, the actual collapse of the economy, it's difficult. And yet he's reporting salvation, the salvation of souls is increasing, the numbers of baptisms is increasing, 
God is using it. He is using it. And the people are learning. Our strength lies in the fact that Christ is our riches. Not what this world has to offer. A legacy of selfless perseverance. They, they labored for the extension of Christ's kingdom. They gave themselves to it. There wasn't time for entertainment. There wasn't time for frivolities. There wasn't time for nonsense. There wasn't time for ongoing senses of, of, of comfort. They couldn't be persuaded by, by visions of early retirement and an easy life. It's not what they wanted. What's pitched to you would find no resting place in them. I hope we're all the same. Oh, God help us. God help us. Secondly, a legacy of scriptural preaching. Why is it that, by and large, you come here and you have a certain expectation as to what you're going to receive each Lord's Day? Why is that? It's, it's the legacy. It's the legacy. Had I lived prior to, to Calvin's day, I don't know if I would preach, certainly I, I do know, I would not preach the way I preach now, I know that for a fact. But whether or not it would be as, as, as intentionally scriptural and purposefully dealing with the whole counsel of God in the fashion I endeavor now is, is not likely. One of the great legacies that we have, we're a Presbyterian church, just means that it's elder-led. It's become more common in recent days among even churches that aren't Presbyterian. Many Baptist churches have reformed their, their, their church book of order, the way they run things, because they realize, hey, actually, it shouldn't be one guy running the show. There should be a plurality of elders. Well, a Presbyterianism communicates that. It inverts the power structures. It recognized that, that part of the, the darkness of the day was brought about because the structures of the world prior to the Protestant Reformation was in this kind of pyramid-type structure. There's always one guy at the top calling the shots. Presbyterianism endeavors to invert that structure which, as I said to someone recently, is even, even as, and as I've said here, I think, as well, it is part of the, 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 the careful weighing of, of, of government, how the government and the various powers of, of the, in the United States is, is kind of drawing from the insight of Presbyterian government so that there are checks and balances in the spheres of of government here in this nation. It's drawing from the same exact understanding. And so the great Presbyterian himself, John Knox, 
he, he, he certainly taught men how to preach. And he understood. Give them the word. So the preaching was scriptural. That's the first thing. It was scriptural. The only thing the reformers preached was the Bible. And Knox said in a letter to other ministerial brethren in Scotland, here's what he said to them. For as the Word of God is the beginning of spiritual life, without which all flesh is dead in God's presence, and as it is the lantern to our feet, without the brightness whereof all the posterity of Adam does walk in darkness, and as it is the foundation of faith, without which no man understands the good will of God, so it is also the only organ and instrument which God uses to strengthen the weak, to comfort the afflicted, to reduce to mercy by repentance such as have slidden and finally, to preserve and keep the very life of the soul in all assaults and temptations. And therefore, if you desire your knowledge to be increased, your faith to be confirmed, your conscience to be quieted and comforted, or finally, your soul to be preserved in life, let your exercise be frequent in the law of your Lord God, end quote. The only organ and instrument which God uses to strengthen the weak, comfort the afflicted, to reduce to mercy by repentance such as have slidden, and finally to preserve and keep the very life of the soul in all assaults and temptations. The only. The Word of God. So there you are, you're you're going through your trials and your temptations and your difficulties. And I stand here every Lord's Day recognizing that what you need, what you need aren't, are not flowery illustrations. They're not long-winded stories. Of, you, you need the Word. You need the Scripture. So you need, you need the Bible. You need the Bible. They also recognize that this scriptural preaching must also be, or should also be, expository. And, and you really have to do an analysis of what preaching was like prior to the Reformers to understand the significance of this. But the Reformers generally, many of them at least, they, they, they endeavored to preach verse by verse, just walk through books of the Bible with their people. In Geneva's three churches... The Word was preached every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> Isn't it interesting? Uh, there, you get a lot of talk about Calvin today. And people, they, people they, want to, they want to imbibe the things that John Calvin, the great John Calvin. <clears throat> and certainly, I would encourage that. But isn't it interesting that with the imbibing of that has come, there are, others that, there are many of which, let's say, that have dropped what you're doing right now. You're gathering for worship in the evening of the Lord's Day. They dropped that. They dropped it. Like it's nothing. 
I have thought, what would it look like if I preached every day? <laughs> Calvin didn't preach every day, mind you, but there was preaching going on every day. I think he preached every other day. But there was preaching always going on. I thought, you know, what, what if we did that? What if we did that? Certainly twice on the Lord's Day is good, but, but, but what if we preached every day? What would that look like? It's always interesting to me to, on the one or two occasions where I have, I've looked in at some of these mega churches and their midweek, the midweek meeting. I don't know if you've ever seen any of them. These, I'm talking like uh, TD, TD, TD Jakes and I don't know what. There's like 17,000 people. I know them. It's like 17,000 members or whatever at, at that church. And, you know, on, on, a, on a Sunday morning, it's, it, it looks full. And Wednesday night is about as many as are here tonight. You know, this is, there's no one there. There's no one there. There's just no interest. Not everyone makes it here on a Wednesday night, but a good number of you do, and it's really encouraging. When Calvin was banished from Geneva, which I'll not get into now, but he, he was banished, sent away. When he came back, you know what he did? When he, when he, when he preached, he came back to his preaching duties, when they, when they begged him, basically, come back, come back. He picked up the very next verse where he left off three years prior. Three years pass. You think, oh, come on. You know, there's something else. No, I'll just, I'll just pick up exactly where I left off. You know, when I read that years ago, I thought, wow. Oh, wow. You know, there's, there's a man who's is like, he's realizing this, this is what they need. This is, this, they, need, they need the Word. He preached 123 sermons in Genesis, 200 from Deuteronomy, 159 from the book of Job, 174 from Ezekiel, 189 from the book of Acts, 25 sermons on Lamentations, 5 sermons on one chapter of Obadiah. This, this was, this was his, his, his desire. Break, break, break the bread of life. Give people scripture. In 1560, John Knox, who learned much from Calvin, he went to Geneva. He saw there things that transformed his understanding of what was needed. Put in his heart desires that he would long to see replicated and multiplied in Scotland. And in a publication he put together with a committee of other men called the First Book of Discipline, he stated this. Again, this is advice. We think it most expedient that the Scripture be read in order. That is, that some one book of the Old or New Testament be begun and ordinarily read to the end. And the same we judge of preaching, where the minister for the most part remains in one place. For this skipping and deviation from place to place of Scripture, be it in reading or be it in preaching, we judge not so profitable to edify the kirk or the church as the continual following of one text, end quote. Just, just be methodical. Go through it all. They were also passionate in their preaching. These men preached with passion. <laughs> and, you know, this is it. It's become common today and acceptable, and probably more acceptable today, 
to, to talk, to, to, to have a conversation from the pulpit. In fact, get rid of the pulpit. Get rid of the pulpit. Maybe you have a music stand or a perspex thing that doesn't look so intimidating, you know, some perspex stand or a music stand, and just maybe sit on a stool and have a conversation with you. Make you feel like we're just having a little talk here. It's all casual. It's all casual. That's, that's what communicates, casual. You know, you know what's funny? And I say this on the side. It's actually, if, <laughs> this has come up recently, and it, it bugs me. And <laughs> I have to be careful. I say this as kindly as possible. Sometimes, there have been a number of people who have come in here in the time I've been here, and it's not unique to here. And the comment gets passed to me about the formality of our dress, right? So formal. And, and they judge from that as if their maybe less formal attire is not welcome, right? And they're not welcome. That's what they, that's what they, it feels like I'm not welcome. So, so I ask, well, did anyone tell you you weren't welcome? Did, you know, is, <laughs> does anyone say that? No, 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 not, no one here, no one here has set a standard for attire. No, no one said that it has to be shirt and tie. No one said anything like that. Not, not a person thinks about it. I, maybe some do. I don't, I don't. I don't. I actually don't. It doesn't come into my head. I just see souls. I, I tell you that before the living God. All I see are souls. And they make these criticisms. I think to myself, no, no. The, the only Pharisee here is you judging us by our lack of casual attire. You're judging something from which is, doesn't exist. I don't think I'm better. I wear a suit partly because of the dignity of the office. I do want to communi- communicate the seriousness of the preaching of the living Word of God. It's not a casual endeavor. And I live in a culture, if I live somewhere else with the attire that communicated uh, seriousness was, was some other attire, I would wear that. I would. I'm not sold into this. So if I was somewhere where a certain kind of attire, robe, whatever, colors then I would wear it. I would wear it. I would, I would, I would, I would adapt. That, that bit doesn't, I don't care. What I'm trying to communicate is the seriousness of what we're engaging in. We're hearing from the living God. We're not here to have a little conversation. It's not a casual thing. God Almighty preaches to your heart through His Word. That's serious business. But I, I'm not thinking, and let me say to anyone in this congregation that may think lesser of people who come with more casual attire, check your heart. Check your heart. It's like the guy who I used to work with years and years ago when he, he turned on me one day. He just turned on me one day. He, he always liked to pick a fight. On this particular day, he wanted to pick a fight because he had... He had drove through the town while I was preaching in the open air. And his comment to me, not, how did you get on? Not, I commend you for your courage, preaching in the town where like 30% of the people that's standing there before you kind of know who you are. No, he says, oh, there you are with your shirt and tie, thinking you're better than everyone. That's what he said. 
I said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're out there trying to preach your heart out to the perishing, and your only comment is, you think you're better than everyone wearing a shirt and tie. God have mercy on you. The Pharisee lives in your heart, not in mine. At least not in that issue. Preaching was passionate. The Reformers were different, for sure. William Farrell, Martin Luther, John Knox, they were intense. They were intense. Everything I can read about them just exudes intensity. And others like Tyndale, I don't get that impression. I just I think Tyndale's like a quintessential gentleman, right? Just this, this real gentle character. More reserved and yet bold as a lion. And when these men preached, they preached with a fire in them that burned in their souls, all that God would give it to us today. It burned in their souls, and it touched the hearts of their hearers. It's been said of John Knox that when he preached, it seemed like all his powers were intensified for this one purpose of declaring God's truth. His words seemed to explode within the hearts of his hearers. One biographer said, quote, his ministerial functions were discharged with the greatest assiduity, fidelity, and fervor. No avocation or infirmity prevented him from appearing in the pulpit. It wouldn't matter what was going on. It doesn't matter how sick he was, he would, he would make his way there. Yeah. Oh, I'll not go there. He goes on to say, His powers of alarming the conscience and arousing the passions have been frequently celebrated, but he excelled also in unfolding the consolations of the gospel and in calming the breasts of those who were agitated by a sense of guilt or suffering under the ordinary afflictions of life. When he discoursed of the griefs and joys, the conflicts and triumphs of genuine Christians, he described what he had himself known and experienced. And there's a famous account, it's well known among those who've ever read anything about John Knox, of a 15-year-old sitting under his preaching when Knox was, was near his death, like he was almost promoted to glory. It's 1571, what he died in 1572. So he's at the end of his life, this old man, and this 15-year-old, here's what he Supposedly, down through the ages, this is the record of what he, he saw. I heard him teach there the prophecies of Daniel that summer and the winter following. I had my pen and my little book and took away such things as I could comprehend. In the opening up of his text, he was moderate the space of half an hour. But when he entered to application, he made me so thrill and tremble that I could not hold a pen to write. He was very weak. I saw him. Every day of his doctrine go slowly and wearily with a furring of matrix about his neck, a staff in one hand, and good godly Richard Ballantyne, his servant, holding up the other oxter. From the abbey to the parish kirk, and by the same Richard and another servant, lifted up to the pulpit. So he's carried into the pulpit. He can't get up the steps himself. Two men holding him propping him up into the pulpit till he can get there and <laughs> hold on. And he says, where he behoved to lean at his first entry. So he's leaning on. But ere he had done with his sermon, he was so active and vigorous that he was like to ding the pulpit in blads and fly out of it. 
That was the image this 15-year-old had. He's going to beat the pulpit in pieces and fly out of it. And that's a legacy. That is a legacy. A precious one. The imagery of a man taking his business seriously. Yes, and the 15-year-old, yes, and the children, the children are all there before him. The children have the impression of the seriousness of this business. Yes, that's why, that's why Sunday school's fine. Children's church we do not have here. I do not want our children, their first experience of serious preaching to be sometime when they're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and they come from the, the, the gentle Sunday school teacher, the gentle children's church communicator, and then they come before them <laughs> preaching, and they're like, what is this? I want them to have instilled in them from the earliest possible time a sense of the sobriety of preaching. Oh, go and read those passages. Go and read. Go and read how, how God so ordered His worship and the seriousness and the striking down of Aaron's sons. Worship is serious business. The man who occupies a pulpit has to, has to feel the weight of that. Woe oh, is me if I preach not the gospel. Oh, that there's this, this burden, this, this burden. Sin is like a fire in our bones to preach the word. There's also a legacy of spiritual power. And my time's nearly gone, so I can't go into much depth here, but the Reformation, we're talking about it because of the extent of its influence. It wasn't localized, it spread from nation to nation. Not all nations were impacted at the same time in the same way. Not all nations were swept up during Luther's time, for example. Some of them it took time, it took labor, it was, it was kind of this ongoing battle of reform. Some would leap forward and then they would take steps backwards. Some of them would seem to make progress and then a new king would occupy the throne and, and bring persecution against the church that would in some way stifle the movement. This was the battle, but, but, but we live today, we live today with a recognition that what was going on so often was, was, was extraordinary spiritual power. These were honest men, holy men and women whose hearts were filled with a sense of the glory of God and a singular purpose to make Christ known to their generation. Nations were transformed. Utterly transformed. And we, we, live, we, live, we live in a day where the order has cooled and we, 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 we call ourselves reformed as we sit back with our, with our shot of, of bourbon and our Cuban cigar talking theology. I think we're doing something for the kingdom. Dear me, God help us. God help us. No, no, they, they prayed. Oh, how they prayed. How they prayed. Think of it. Think of it. Think of praying in such a way where the queen, Mary in this case, queen of Scots, said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. How do you, how do you, how do you make such an impact like that? Where the person sitting on the throne 
fierce, your very prayers. I move on to the final point, a legacy of supreme privileges. We are exceedingly privileged. That is a legacy we cannot deny today, here, sitting in Greenville, South Carolina, in the United States of America, a legacy, a legacy of privilege that most of the inhabitants just take for granted. It gave us a sense of an understanding of liberty. What what does liberty even mean? It depends where you are. It depends on your context. What shaped the American understanding of liberty? The fruit of the Protestant Reformation. It's not that the people who came here were were smarter in and of themselves. It wasn't that they imagined a greater sense of government and they were... it It was actually all flowing out of the Reformation. It was getting back to the Bible and saying, hey, listen, if we... What would it look like? What, what does it, Knox goes to Scotland and, and he's trying to shape the nation by the Scriptures. So much of the privilege in your understanding of liberty, I say it, I say it though, it may sound biased standing in a Presbyterian pulpit, but it was the Presbyterian theologians and, and in, many, in many regards that, 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 that permeated, not solely them, not solely them, but so many of their, their labors to comprehend government and how to order things infiltrated even civic society and civic life. So, this is a land, this is a land of great joy. It is. It still is a land that brings to people joy. When they stumbled across the borders, when they, when they come in whether legally or illegally, and they get on the shores of this land, so many of them are just, they're, they're so thankful. Why? Why? Because permeating the life of this nation, and it's the same in the land where I come from myself, so much of what we understand is the byproduct of the labors of Christians who preached and lived to reform their society and their generation by the Word of God. Jesus said, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I think sometimes when we, set, when we set aside the gospel, when we set aside the gospel, it's kind of like America has become a minimal security prison. You can kind of do whatever you want, but what you don't realize is you're, you're still a prisoner. And that's how most Americans deal with the freedom that Christ by His Word brought to Europe and to these shores. And we can't actually enjoy the sweetness of it until we're in Christ. When Philip went there and he preached, there was great joy in that city. Christ preached unto them, brought great joy. What is the need 
of your home? What is the need of our city? What is the need of this nation? It isn't holding to liberties that are like, as I say, a man who lives in a prison where he can basically do whatever he wants, but he's still a prisoner. That's what the freedoms of America have become because we have drifted from the true source of liberty and freedom, Christ. Do you know him? Do you know Christ? Isn't it amazing that in a nation with all of its liberties and privileges that is far more medicated for mental health issues than any other nation on the planet? It just, it just backs up my point. We've all the byproduct of the liberties of the gospel. But it's not in heart. Your need, sinner, tonight. Your need, lost person. Your need is Jesus Christ in the heart. And when he's there, then you will understand these liberties and you will be able to preach them and you will not misdirect people by saying, hey, let's have a rally that talks about conserving American ideals but with no Christ. Christ. It's Christ that brings real freedom. May we never forget it. Let's bow together in prayer. I ask you again, do you have Christ in your heart by faith? Do you know this liberty of coming from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God? Do you know the power of the gospel, how it puts away sin, how it removes a sense of shame, how it gives joy and peace? Do do you know it, or are you... Do you have unrest? Where's your heart? Where's your life? If I can help you, if I can help you, if I can open the Word of God and give some guidance to you tonight, please don't hesitate to let me know. Lord, I pray, help us. Help us to rightly comprehend the privileges of the Protestant Reformation, those things that have come down to us from sincere believers, imperfect as they were, oh, how sincere and diligent they were in their business of preaching Christ. We pray that we will treasure the legacy given to us and carry it forward to the next generation and the generations following. Give us the understanding of how to do that to the best of our ability. Give us power, Lord. We're in need of power. Give us power. Give us joy in the Word of God. 
May it be contagious. May the people that we work with, our neighbors, be, be kind of overwhelmed by the, the joy we have as we read the Word. May there be Bible studies that will be erected in places of employment that will give some of the time of their lunch hour to, to reading the Word, to studying Scripture, to prayer. Oh God, multiply it, we pray. Do it in that marvelous way that will bring about a real change in our community and beyond. Bless thy people. Be with us all as we fellowship at the close of this service. Sanctify the conversation at the fellowship downstairs. Go to your homes and give us power to live to thy glory this week. May we come this coming weekend with expectation to be edified and strengthened further as we think of thy mighty works in the past. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen.